You are listening to a message from Mosaic Knox. For more information about our church, visit mosaicknox.org. The year was 1963, and the day was almost a year to the day, June the 12th. And these words were written. I hope this letter finds you strong in the faith. I also hope that circumstances will soon make it possible for me to meet each of you, not as an interrogationist or a civil rights leader, but as a fellow clergyman and a Christian brother. Let us all hope that the dark clouds of racial prejudice will soon pass away and the deep fog of misunderstanding will be lifted from our fear-drenched communities. And in some not-too-distant tomorrow, the radiant stars of love and brotherhood will shine over our great nation with all of their scintillating beauty. Words penned from the bench of a jail cell, from the pen of Martin Luther King Jr. There are many things that could be said and have been said about MLK, his work, his life, his aim. But one of the more disturbing realities of the letters from a Birmingham jail is that Dr. King was not writing mainly to Americans, he was writing to pastors. And while the issues that ruled the day certainly affected everyone in each city, it was churches who fell in line with the status quo of the country. And it was many pastors who were quiet about issues that we just rather not talk about. Now, the history of America is well documented, but the issues of America are not of primary concern here. Certainly, it is good and right and just to be frustrated and even angered at moments at the social ills of our country, specifically related to race relations. However, what deeply concerns me is not so much what has happened in our country, though much of it lamentable, but what has happened inside our churches. Countries will do atrocious things. Churches should not follow in their footsteps. Countries will do egregious acts. Churches should not mirror them. It just wasn't that long ago that churches in this city were identified as churches of the North and churches of the South. People in this very neighborhood can still identify them as such. Again, the issues that plague us most of the time are not the issues out there in the world somewhere. They are right here among us. A couple years ago, I took a trip to Washington, D.C. and had the opportunity to visit the newly opened Bible Museum. And it was fascinating on many levels because it shared the history of of this sacred text, like the entire history. It was wild to read and understand where we get what we call the Bible and how we got it. But as I was walking through, I went down to the basement. And in the basement, there was an entire floor dedicated to telling a very bizarre story I had never heard. It's the story of the Bible, sort of. It's the story of the Bible with a few pages removed. It's the story of some of the scripture with some of the contents and some of the language, but not all of it. And it was called the Slave's Bible. It was a Bible or parts of the Bible meant for educating slaves. Its full title was actually Select Parts of the Holy Bible for Use of the Negro Slaves in the British West India Islands. Now, these, quote, Bibles had every mention and every reference about freedom and slavery completely removed from the text. So, we're looking at a book not even close to Orthodox Christian, to the Orthodox Christian text that excluded almost 90% of the Old Testament and almost 50% of the New. Or put another way, 
Of the 1,189 chapters that exist in the Bible, this Bible contains 232. Now, some of you are probably thinking to yourself, that's awful, but we don't believe that anymore, thank goodness. Why are you telling us this? That is distant history. Here's why. When it comes to the subject of ethnicity, and specifically the caste system that has come to be known as race, is not so much an American problem, though America has problems. It is a church issue. It is our issue. And one of the reasons why that's the case is because it's our history. Since late January, we have been talking through what it means to be formed as Jesus followers in his church at this time. We are children of God formed by prayer and scripture and one another. We are servants of King Jesus committed to the poor, committed to be beacons of hospitality and generosity to our city. We are missionaries to our city committed to people who don't know Jesus and each of us empowered equally by the spirit of Jesus if we have submitted to his reign and rule over our lives. We are citizens of another kingdom committed to biblical justice and the intercultural expression of the church, which is what our topic is today. If you open the Bible, the overarching story is one of pursuit. And the overwhelming theme is relationship repair. It starts by God pursuing Adam and Eve after they have sinned. And it is a story of God who constantly pursues his people over and over and over again. And in Genesis 12, the story of Abraham is a story of God birthing a new family, one that will reach beyond any social and ethnic boundaries that we construct and will far outnumber the stars in the sky. So a covenant is built between God and Abraham and Abraham's offspring, who we know as the Israelites. And those of the 12 tribes of Israel descended from Abraham to Isaac to Jacob and then the 12 tribes named after his sons and grandsons. So a covenant is struck between Abraham and God, between the Israelites and Yahweh, that they are to be a light to the nations, that Yahweh is the supreme God. That Yahweh is the one who is worthy of worship and worthy of devotion. And it is Yahweh who fulfills the deepest longings of the human soul. Yahweh, the Hebrew word for God, is the hope of the world. And the Jews point the nations, also called the Gentiles, to him. But as we know, the story is filled with disrepair and disdain. The Jewish people, the Israelites and Gentiles, are constantly at odds. They grow over time to hate each other, a hate revolving around ethnicity that is difficult to put into words in the 21st century because of its intensity. So God shows up on the scene as a Jew, and he does something so offensive to the Jewish people. He converses with and dines with and opens himself up to the Gentiles. And in what has become one of the more popular passages to quote in the scripture, Jesus steps into the temple with a whip. But we miss something when we tell the story. We focus on Jesus' righteous anger, his emotion that leads to action. What we don't focus on is what Jesus was righteously angry about. The temple was the place of worship, the place that God had established on earth where right relationship with him could happen. And in the temple was a place called the Court of Gentiles which was where any non-Jew, any foreigner, any outcast, anyone ostracized, 
and anyone that was not an Israelite could come. They could not step any farther in than the court of Gentiles, but they were welcome into the court. And particularly around the time of Passover, this was critical. You have hundreds and thousands of people flocking to this tiny city to offer sacrifices to Yahweh, God, at the temple for forgiveness of all wrongdoing. And you have financial peddlers setting up shops seeking to prey on those who have come to worship. They are jacking up the prices of the pigeons, which are the sacrificial animals for those who do not have the means for a lamb or a goat. And they are turning profit off of another's desperation, and they are loving it. Desperate people taken advantage of across ethnic lines. And God steps in and quotes from the scroll of Isaiah 56 and Jeremiah 7. My house shall be called a house of prayer for all nations, but you have made it a den of robbers. Jesus' claim to be God is highly controversial. It's what got him killed. But let's not overlook or dismiss the fact that Jesus greatly offended the Jewish people by his invitation for all to come. It was his inclusion of those unlike the Jews that was so disturbing. And we see that after he is killed and he rises and he says what is probably one of the most famous passages in this part of the country in Matthew 28. We know it as the Great Commission. Go therefore and make disciples of all nations or all ethne. We call them people groups. And then enter the book of Acts. The Holy Spirit falls on the disciples and the reversal of the Tower of Babel happens. If you know the story of Babel, you know that everyone is attempting to erect a tower that will reach God. And so God confuses them by causing them to speak various languages, whereas they cannot communicate with one another any longer and the tower crumbles. Now, in Acts 2, at Pentecost, the Spirit unites them by giving them many different languages And yet they are able to comprehend and understand one another a foretaste of the new city. A house for all nations. A growing realization of Isaiah 56-7. For my house shall be called a house of prayer for all ethne. And throughout the rest of the New Testament, many of the letters deal with this vertical relationship that inherently implies horizontal repair, specifically related to the issue of ethnicity. And as we think about what it means to be citizens of another kingdom, we are aspiring to an intercultural expression of the church. And those words are, those words are intentional. Right? It is an aspiration meaning we are not there yet. I don't believe we're that close, but I do believe there's a willingness. There is an open heart, which is all God asks. And it's an intercultural expression because we know that we will not fully reflect the global kingdom of God, even if we tried. No church family can fully reflect such a kaleidoscope of people. It's impossible because we are limited But we can aspire to an expression of it. And we certainly can lean into what the Spirit of God wants to do if we are willing. So there are three things to remember in this critical endeavor of being an outpost of the kingdom of God in this community. The first is this. We are committed to unity 
not uniformity. We are committed to unity, not uniformity. Listen to Jesus' prayer in John 17. I do not ask for these only, but also for those who will believe in me through their word, that they may all be one, just as you, Father, are in me and I in you, that they also may be in us, so that the world may believe that you have sent me. The glory that you have given me, I have given to them, that they may be one even as we are one, I in them and you in me that they may become perfectly one, so that the world may know that you sent me and loved them even as you have loved me. Jesus was praying for his disciples, and he was praying for those that would come after his disciples. In some ways, he was praying for us, for the church that would come. And not only was he praying for the future church, but he was praying for the unity of the future church, the oneness, the intimacy, the idea that we desire to be fully known and fully loved, and that desire would be realized in the church. And he's praying for that because he knows the unity of the church will signify to the world that these people worship a different type of God and belong to a different type of kingdom, a God willing to lay down power and prestige for the sake of others so that they may know God as their father. But what isn't directly stated in this particular passage, but what we can infer from many other passages, is that unity does not mean uniformity. God is triune unity, Father, Son, and Spirit, existing eternally and yet distinct and diverse. I heard it said, any call to unity that requires partisan allegiance, discarding one's heritage, or conflating cultural and or social class norms with spiritual obligations is not a call to biblical unity, but to assimilation. It is a call to mere uniformity. And uniformity is not unity. Uniformity is easy. Everyone does everything the exact same way. Unity is difficult. Everyone is bound together by the blood of Jesus in the midst of some cultural distinctives that you would think would drive them apart. Now, having said that, a lot of conversation in the church over the past year has revolved around this idea of unity. But let's be clear. Unity in and of itself, is not necessarily even a grand virtue. I mean, plenty of terrible things have happened in the world through people being unified. In fact, one could argue some of the greatest atrocities in the world have come from destructive leaders unifying a passionate base. So worldly unity is not the aim because worldly unity is merely uniformity. If worldly unity was the ultimate goal in a sinful world, then many sinful issues are swept out of sight and out of mind so as not to disrupt unity. In the church, though, unity is about striving toward godliness, not kumbayaness. We are not looking for conflict-averse churches. We are looking for churches to engage the conflict in a healthy, godly way. Conflict in churches is inevitable because people are involved which makes unity amidst conflict a beautiful, difficult thing. And honestly, biblical unity is quite uncomfortable because it requires us to practice Colossians 3, which says to put on love, which is the perfect bond of unity. 
And the way of unity in the scripture does not mean everyone gets along. It means everyone is growing in their understanding of truth and love. It doesn't mean the status quo is kept. In fact, in many ways, a church striving for unity will constantly be evaluating the status quo. We are not all the same, and that is what makes the church beautiful. But we are all committed to grow in our embodiment of this man we follow, Jesus. Unity, not uniformity. Number two, we are committed to equity amidst diversity. We are committed to equity amidst diversity. Acts 13, 1 through 3. Now there were in the church at Antioch prophets and teachers, Barnabas, Simeon, who was called Niger, Lucius of Cyrene, Manan, a lifelong friend of Herod the Tetrarch, and Saul. While they were worshiping the Lord and fasting, the Holy Spirit said, Set apart for me Barnabas and Saul for the work to which I have called them. Barnabas, who was a native of the island of Cyprus. Simeon, who was called Niger, and Niger in Latin means dark. Most scholars say that we can infer he was most likely from African descent. Other scholars have even gone so far as to say he most likely was from what is modern-day Niger, a country on Africa's continent. Lucius, who was from Cyrene, which is now in present-day Libya, but was an ancient Greek city on the North African coast, Menaean, a Roman citizen, some call a foster brother of King Herod, who was either from Judea, Galilee, or Samaria because Herod ruled over the entire region, and Saul of the tribe of Benjamin, a devout Jew from the city of Tarsus. So we have a leadership team of one of the first churches established outside Jerusalem in the city of Antioch, made up of two from Africa, one from the Mediterranean, one from the Middle East, and one from Asia Minor. The early church was multi-ethnic. It was diverse. And it wasn't because they compromised the gospel. It's because they actually believed it. They believed it to be big enough and beautiful enough where brothers and sisters of diverse cultural backgrounds could live in the same family equitably. And it's not just who they were, right? But what they were doing, praying and fasting, worshiping and singing, listening for the Spirit of God and sending out people from the church to the world. There was an air of community, of siblinghood, of uniqueness around the cross. It is good to note here that our goal is not necessarily diversity. Because when diversity is the goal... Tokenism is the likely result. Meaning, if we try to be diverse, we may have diversity represented, but it comes at the cost of humanity because we now use people as pawns in a game of religious optics. Diversity is not the goal because there are hundreds and thousands of places in the world where there is great diversity and little equity. There are thousands of places in the world where there is great diversity, but absolutely no community. Think about it. Plantations were highly diverse and extremely inequitable. The African slave trade brought over people in droves from different backgrounds and people groups and languages, and they were all subservient to white plantation owners. Extremely diverse and extremely inequitable. 
New York subways are definitely the most diverse places in our country and maybe some of the most diverse places in the entire world. And yet, if you have ever stepped foot on a New York subway, you know it may be diverse, but it is incredibly lonely. There are no relationships on a New York subway. There is no community. Representation can be a good thing, but reconciliation is a much better thing. We are not looking to shine a spotlight on individuals. We are looking to aim as a collection of individuals a light on God. And if you look at the church in Ephesus, one of the startling claims that Paul makes is the mystery of the gospel. Now, when we hear mystery, we automatically run to the mystery of God becoming man. And that is mysterious. Make no mistake. It is the glorious truth we hold to, the incarnation. Paul describes in detail in Ephesians 2, 1 through 10, that it is by pure, perfect grace that we are brought into the presence of God. It is God and God alone who does this work, and it is glorious. And then from Ephesians 2, 11 through 22, he outlines the strange implication of this truth. It's not only that the God of grace has come down to embrace all who would come to him, but it now means that they are called to embrace everyone specifically those across ethnic boundaries. Listen to what he says in 2, 13 and 18 and 19. But now in Christ Jesus, you who were once far off, meaning Gentiles, have been brought near by the blood of Jesus. For through him we both, Jew and Gentile, have access in one spirit to the Father. So then you are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens with the saints, and members of the household of God. He goes on to say in Ephesians 3, When you read this, you can perceive my insight into Christ, which was not made known to the sons of men in other generations, as it has now been revealed to his holy apostles and prophets by the Spirit. This mystery is that the Gentiles are fellow heirs, members of the same body, and partakers of the promise in Christ Jesus through the gospel. The mystery is that Jews and Gentiles make up the same body. And not just the global body, though that certainly and obviously exists, but the local church, the small, extremely significant, tiny, in-breaking of the kingdom in our little neighborhood. That's the mystery. Where white and black and brown can come around a table regularly. Pray and fast and sing regularly. Learn from one another weekly. Listen for the Spirit of God and the life of one another consistently and pursue Jesus together. In a world like ours, in a moment like this, Jesus says, The world will know that you have come from me when you are one, dwelling in unity, diversity, and equity. And though most of us do not come from a Jewish heritage, we can read the text and discern that there are still ethnic tensions in our world today, in our churches today. Over the last year, there has been quite an elevation of the conversation around race, particularly post-George Floyd. And I believe that to be a good thing. I really do, but it cannot be a quick thing. And for those who follow Jesus, it is inherently a long thing. Ligon Duncan is the president of Reformed Theological Seminary, and he says this, Anti-racism 
is not the gospel. But the gospel is anti-racism, and racism is anti-gospel. Racism is not just a sin. It is sin. It is sin against God because it is a sin against God's image bearers and an affront to God himself, no doubt. But racism is not merely sin. It's heresy. And for a long time, I feel the church in America, the church in the South specifically, has said one thing and done another. Our intellectual belief about the doctrines of God and his image bearers, particularly our siblings in Jesus, have not matched our cultural values about what that means for us. And by God's grace, we don't have the names of churches with adjectives like Northern and Southern anymore, but that heretical doctrine and heretical practice has decades worth of implications and we are still living in them. MLK in 1960 in a Meet the Press video said, it is a tragedy that 11 a.m. on a Sunday morning is the most segregated hour in Christian America. The issues of race are not issues namely within our country. They're issues within our churches. And here's the conundrum. Pete Hughes is a pastor in London, and he says this, We are the remedy for the problem, and we are riddled with the disease. We are the remedy for the problem, and we are riddled with the disease. The hope of the world lies within here, in this group of people, and so does the stain of sin. Folks, the issue is not out there among the world. It is in here among the church. We're not even talking about issues happening out there in the world. We're talking about issues that live in here. We must be committed to equity amidst diversity. And lastly, we are committed to glory realized in joy. We are committed to glory realized in joy. After this, I looked and behold a great multitude that no one could number from every nation, from all tribes and peoples and languages standing before the throne and before the Lamb clothed in white robes with palm branches in their hands and crying out with a loud voice, salvation belongs to our God who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. This is the vision. This is the end. The end goal is going to be the city of God with all the people of God and all the nations of God gathered around the throne of God and worshiping the Lamb of God who has remade the beautiful people of God into his image. God's glory, the full display of his beauty and wonder and grace to us overflowing like a waterfall. And our joy the full experience and receiving of his glory and grace flowing through us like water. It does not say a lot about a leader if they can get a lot of people who look like them to follow them. It's just not that impressive. What's richer and more beautiful is if you can win a following from a very diverse group of people that would have never befriended one another otherwise. Meaning God is the most beautiful being in the universe and he is captivating people groups around the world to follow him because he is worth it. 
He is creating the most beautiful and diverse family the world has ever seen because he is the most beautiful and creative God the world has ever known. The church is not a clone factory because humans are not robots. We are creative and unique and different, and all those things say something about God. There are 6,500 languages spoken in the world right now. That is incredible. That says something about God, about beauty and creativity. It does say something significant about the human race, but it says something marvelous about Jesus, the creator of the world. And our gospel is blood-bought, meaning Jesus died to bring us together, not keep us separated. He died so any invisible walls that we have constructed for our own preferences can be brought down so that the world will know that our God is big enough and strong enough and loving enough to bring people who would otherwise never interact together. And not only in the same room, but with the same name follower of the way, brother and sister. It's the glory of God in the face of Jesus given to those who would follow him. Now, some people may say, yeah, Wes, that's a great vision, but this city isn't really that diverse. We're just fabricating something if we try to be a church that reflects our community and city. Well, just this past year, Whittle Springs Middle School had one-third of their kids white, one-third of their kids black, and one-third of their kids Hispanic Latino. Our little neighborhood. Our little corner of the city. Let me read you some numbers from 2019. The Hispanic Latino population in Knoxville was 19,707. The black or African American, the black and African American population in Knoxville was 45,601. The American Indian population in Knoxville was 4,061. The Asian population in Knoxville was 12,969. Some other ethnicities not recognized in those categories, but also non-Anglo or non-white, were 5,446. So, in total, 88,637, or roughly 20% of the city, is non-white or minority. And that is people who filled out the census. And we know that not everyone will fill it out. That is right at the national average. So in many ways, our little southern city reflects our country. We just don't want to open our eyes to see it all the time. Because it requires humility. It requires some introspection. It requires us to take a step back. To see Jesus for who he is. To see my neighbor for who they are. And to see myself for who I am, that requires a measured amount of compassion and humility. So as I end here, a few takeaways. Number one is this, not every church is called to be multi-ethnic. Talking to many people over the last few years, I have learned of the value and the necessity of minority-only churches. In a majority Anglo world, these are necessary to exhale and to breathe and to come together and to laugh and to relax and to understand one another at a deeper level, and that is good. So I am not saying that every church in the history of the world or even every church in this city needs to have this as an aspiration. But I am saying that I desire ours too. In talking with enough of you, I believe you do too. 
Number two, this will take what we have the least amount of time. This will not happen overnight. It probably shouldn't happen overnight. It's time intensive. It's relationship building. It's creating bridges of trust. It's sacrifice. It's work. And it won't come natural. It's just going to take time. This also is not primarily about Sundays. I know a handful, actually more than a handful of churches that claim to be multi-ethnic, but it's just because they have a lot of various cultural backgrounds in the room on Sunday. It's not because they have a lot of people in cross-cultural relationships around their dinner table every week. I am much more concerned and much more committed to figuring out how we can expand our dinner tables than I am about how to expand this worship service. Because it's around the dinner table and in the living room and in walks around the neighborhood where barriers get broken down and understanding begins to happen. And from those relationships, we pray that Sundays take on a unique mold. But it's not primarily about this space, even though it includes this space. For everyone should be uncomfortable. In a purely multi-ethnic, multicultural church, everyone will experience discomfort. We have to embrace a little discomfort. And I don't mean that we should long to come to church and pray that we will feel out of place. That's not what I'm saying. What I am saying, though, is that for the majority of us in this room that are white, we have to consider what it means for us to be okay with thinking through and practicing ways of church that are foreign to us. That will most likely cause some discomfort. And in those moments, you are able to take comfort in the God who sees and able to empathize with our brothers and sisters who are not white, who have experienced great discomfort in churches like ours for much of their life. It's just the way of love. This is the way. And finally, the church in Acts is both descriptive and prescriptive. So the truth is that a lot of people read Acts 13, 1 through 3 and say that is a description of the church. Luke is merely describing who the church was and he wasn't saying that every church had to be like that. I do believe he is describing the church in in Antioch. But I also believe if you read both letters to the church at Corinth, if you read the letter to the church at Galatia, if you read the letter to the church at Ephesus, they're more than just descriptions. There is a prescription, there is an encouragement, an exhortation to a way of life. There is Jesus who has broken down the dividing wall of hostility and is creating one new man across all ethnicities and people groups. Unity, not uniformity. Equity amidst diversity. Glory realized in joy. Now, I realize I'm a white pastor pastoring a predominantly white church saying these things. Believe you me, it is not lost on me. But part of why I have a conviction in my bones about this is because people like me haven't been saying it. And better yet, we haven't been embodying it. So being aware of the desire to be an intercultural expression of the church will not make us one. Okay? But awareness is the very first step. Nothing happens without awareness, okay? So awareness does not produce change, but nothing will happen without it. We are citizens of another kingdom. And I want this church to be a flyer 
a brochure, if you will, for that kingdom where there is unity, there is equity, where there is joy amidst the very diverse people of God and where God is the supremely honored being. And we are children in this beautifully diverse and wonderfully unique family. Something supernatural and something otherworldly, I believe, will begin to happen in this church when we take Jesus seriously and we take the scriptures for what they say. A church that seeks to both reflect its current community and its coming one. Thank you for listening to this message. If you want more information about our church, please visit us online at mosaicnox.org. 